This is Francisca, and you are listening to the Francisca Show podcast on JewishCoffeeHouse.com. to the Francisca Show podcast. Today is an episode inspired by a few things. Number one, the new Netflix reality TV series with Julia Hart called My Unorthodox Life, as well as a blog post, one of four, that I was referred to by Dr. Efrat Brook, who is our guest today. And why I'm so excited to have her on the show is because She has the background that officially Julia Hart talks about she comes from, so very Haredi or yeshivish, so she understands the insular part of the community, as well as the more secular community, because Efrat went to medical school and is a resident currently, so she understands the other side as well, and we are getting an educated perspective here. It's not only coming from an emotional space. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) I would just like to acknowledge three parts event of a Netflix series like this that can cause number one, the embarrassment and shame that the story is causing the family, because that's one of the reasons people refrain from leaving the community because of the ties they would have to cut. They might lose their family support and the shame that it causes them when they do exit. Number two, the reason this show was so triggering or bothersome to so many is because it did bring up a lot of the challenges and issues that we as Orthodox Jews and specifically female Orthodox Jews have to face while observing Judaism today. And number three, It brings up fear for our children as we raise the next generation or think about the next generation. What are we facing with Netflix and everything out there on the internet? What will the next generation look like with all the information out there and with what we're exposing them or choosing to not expose them to? We'll go into some more analysis of the show. I did watch the entire show in preparation of it. It was really hard. (laughs) You're better prepared than me because I only got to watch the first episode, but full disclosure, I worked about 80 hours this last week and I watched it. I had two hours on a, a night call that were just like luckily empty and I just sat in the call room and watched the first episode and then I got a consult. So it was over. You have been preparing for this for a long time and you said you spent a month writing your paper. I'm definitely excited to have you on here as an expert. First of all, welcome to the show. Tell Thank us, you. <laughs> you're so welcome. Tell us a little bit about your background in a nutshell. I grew up in Borough Park. My parents came to the U.S. about a year before I was born to get medical treatment for one of my brothers who was sick. And I think medicine in Israel is very advanced today, but at the time it was a, a question of keeping him alive to come here. And then they had six kids at the time, and then I was born in three more. So I'm one of 10 in total. My father's a rabbi and teaches in Besiako Seminary, which is the seminary attached to the high school that I went to. So I went to Besiako of Park for elementary school. Then I went to Besiako High School, which they're actually not connected, those two institutions. And then I went to Besiako Seminary, where my father teaches. And then I actually also spent three summers in Avey Yerushalayim after seminary. 
So that's as far as my Jewish education. I did have a brief stint in college right after seminary and then dropped out for reasons that are a little bit too long to discuss when I'm giving like a, an elevator pitch about my life, but then went back when I was 22. So I graduated from Turo. In between all of that, I was teaching at Baragola Institute in Brooklyn, New York. So that was a job that started in the year right after seminary and spent all the way through my graduation from Turo at around, I don't know, I was 24 or 25. I got married when I was 25. And then I went to medical school shortly after. It took a year, it took two, three years to kind of transition from teaching to taking the MCAT and figuring out how to apply to medical school and all that. And then landed up at Mount Sinai in New York. And here I am, recently graduated and a resident. Congratulations. This is so exciting. (laughs) It's a never ending train, but there is a light at the end of the tunnel. (laughs) Okay. As I said, there were three different directions we could take this episode, but I'd like to focus on number two, which is discussing the issues and challenges of our community today. And I am not attacking. We're here to really discuss, go deep, and to potentially bring awareness or inspire change. How do we even begin here? I'll start by bringing up a discrepancy or a contradiction that came up in the show, and then we'll go into what issues this brings up in the community. So Julia Hart, a.k.a. Talia Handler, she has a conversation in the earlier episodes with her daughter. They're about to go to Muncie to visit her ex-husband. And she mentions how Miriam says how she's going to put on her Muncie clothes. And Julia says, you don't have to wear Muncie clothes. Just wear your own clothes. Be you wherever you are. And Miriam says, in response, I want to dress out of respect. I'm going to a community where you dress a certain way. So I might not go the whole nine yards with shells and all. I don't remember exactly the details. But the point is, there was this conversation of, I don't dress a certain way, but I'm going to community, so I want to dress out of respect. I've heard this conversation probably 100 times in my life, how people want to, at the same time, keep their individuality. And how does that work with being respectful to a community or your family members? However, on the other hand, when the hearts were going to Paris for Fashion Week, The suitcase with her Louis Vuitton outfit didn't make it there. And she was freaking out because she didn't have Louis Vuitton to wear to the Louis Vuitton fashion show. And she was talking all about how it's disrespectful to wear the wrong designer to the wrong fashion show and how that's not something you do. And it's just disrespectful. And I just heard the same language used. And I'd like to just dial and focus in on the whole sneeze slash being respectful, but being true to who you are. And I know you break down SNEAS in a lot of ways. And the answer, Haredi communities usually give us, which we've all heard, but there's so much more to that. So let's go into this. I'll have you help me out here. (laughs) (laughs) Sure. I think there are two very separate issues here, right? There's the issue of how you want to dress. And then there's the issue of respect for other people seeing them as two very separate things, how I want to dress and how I would walk into a community that has different standards than me. Personally, if I walked in 
into a community with different standards, I would, it sounds like what Bacheva said, maybe I wouldn't do it to the T, like shells and all and bulletproof stockings and tights, but I would try to accommodate. And in fact, I do it when I go to my own parents. I um, definitely tweak the way I dress and they probably know it, but that's just like a basic level of respect. But on the other side, if you want to start breaking down Haredi Tznias and why I think Julia is reacting the way she is, I think there's a history there that many people either don't know or are choosing to ignore, or for some reason it doesn't bother them. But Julia is reacting to some. I don't know that her reaction is productive, and I don't know that I would react. That, in fact, I didn't react that way. But I feel like this didn't fall out of the sky, like out of the blue. She's reacting to a particular idea of tzniyas that's stressed in the Haredi world. And if you want, we can go further and delve into why I think there's such a strong reaction in someone like Julia to the concept of tzniyas. Absolutely. Let's go into that. I know we did a post-tzniyas stress disorder panel earlier this year, a couple (laughs) months back, just acknowledging that this has caused trauma to many women who even to this day observe tzniyas to their fullest capacity. Yeah. There's a couple of things here. I like to use the word Haredi because I think this problem is unique to the Haredi sector of Orthodox Jews. I, right now I'm like fully immersed in the modern Orthodox world. I, I don't see this issue here. Maybe I'll see it soon. Maybe I'm not here long enough. But this is something I see distinctly there. There are a couple of things. One is that SNES is emphasized to the extent that it's considered the, the greatest thing you can do, right? Like people are gonna be like, what? I went to Beis Yaakov. So I heard this over and over again. Yes, this is what they teach. Maybe not in your Beis Yaakov, but my Beis Yaakov had 200 students per grade, at least some, some had 250. So you're talking about every four years, they're graduating a thousand students. And for sure, this is what we were taught by many teachers, not one or two or three teachers, right? That the ultimate accomplishment of a Jewish woman you know, of course, they're, they're speaking as the mouthpiece for Jewish, right? They're not making a distinction between different brands of Judaism, of course, but that the ultimate accomplishment of a Jewish woman is her tzniyas. And if you dig deeper into that, what do they mean? They mean like how you, how you dress, right? You're, if something bad happens, you're encouraged to take a Kabbalah upon yourself and add more interest to your skirt, cut your shaitel, or maybe they didn't talk about shaitels in high school, but the concept, right? It's, this is your way to grow and become a great person, Right. Not by pursuing a career that helps people, not by advancing your education, not by a whole list of other things, not by being creative or whatever, but by being tenuous. This is your ultimate accomplishment. So much so that there's this concept of what Torah does for a man, right? Like it's his ultimate accomplishment, tenuous does for a woman. And this is the message you get as a woman growing up. I feel like for some people, this message flies over their head. But if you're sensitive, and especially if you're someone that goes on to teach like I did, and I think Julia did, you, you start to understand this message and it goes into you. And there were times I definitely internalized this message. To become a better person, I should lengthen my skirts, make my tops a little looser. I don't know, whatever other ideas of things I had in my head at the time when I was 19 or, or 20. So that's one thing. Is that what we really think? Is like this? Is this where our accomplishments lie? Like, honestly, sneeze is about dressing like a decent human being within the con- within your cultural context, right? Because the laws of sneeze are based on cultural context, and it's about respecting sexual balance, which also 
depends on context and social structure and a bunch of different things. It's not about making women's ultimate accomplishment how exactly they cover themselves up. So that's one issue. The other issue is that many times it's, oh, you should dress these because then people will focus on your internal qualities, right? Like what? Like your creativity? Cross that off your list. Like what? Like your intelligence? Yeah, cross that off your list. Like what? Your Taurus scholarship? Cross that off the list. Go down the whole list of those internal qualities. But the Haredi world does not celebrate those things sufficiently, or at least not publicly, or the leadership does not fully acknowledge, right, that as women, we need to be human beings in our own right the same way that men do. So that's the other idea of sneeze. The third thing is that when something bad happens, women are the scapegoat. It's incredible. Even something like the Miron tragedy where no, no women were hurt. Somehow some ad made it into the army telling women to get rid of their shakles. So I have like, this LinkedIn fight with someone who's like, oh, that doesn't represent for authority Jews. Anybody can put an ad. And I'm like, really? Can I put an ad in with the things I'm saying? No, it's not going to make the cut. But that made the cut right? Someone up there thought it's okay to publish a full page ad that, the, you know, that in response to the Miron tragedy, women should fix their shaitals. So that's another thing of sneeze. Okay, I'm gonna let you talk now. <laughs> I think it's so interesting how, and you mentioned this in your blog post, how for Haredim, there's no spectrum of orthodoxy. It's either Haredim or nothing, because there's a lack of respect for other that is correct. For other sides. It's of not, so I want to make it clear. It's not everyone and it's not the people, but in general from the leadership, yes. There's a lack of respect in not considering modern Orthodox Jews, for example, as legit, right? Like they're not real. Like my school would never, ever in a million years bring in a speaker who's not Haredi ever. Whereas I've, I've heard of modern Orthodox institutions, like they'll bring in sometimes a Haredi person if it matches whatever thing they're trying to speak about or advance. But you're right on that. You've mentioned that your friends who went into the medical field who had your background with a Haredi upbringing left orthodoxy completely, where on the other hand, your colleagues or co-students who came from more modern orthodox backgrounds stayed or graduated on the same level of observance. Yes. So it's, sure. So it hasn't been published for those of you who are listening and wondering where it is, but it's going to be published soon. So obviously this is a very small sample size and it's anecdotal, right? Because I'm talking about like a handful of people. So it's not like we can draw any major, this is not like a scientific study, but within my little circle, every single person that I knew when I applied who grew up, I'm, I'm not going to say their names, but okay, one grew up Bishnitz, one grew up Chabad Haredi, one grew up another Baruch Hasidish. So those three people, every single one of them is not from those three. And then I met a number of modern Orthodox people who are applying around the same time. And in my school, I'm thinking of three, four of them. And yeah, like you said, every single one of them graduated like exactly the same way they came in. I think it's the Haredi Hashkafan way of life if you look into the history, and I'm not an expert, but I know enough to know that it was a reactive, it was a reactive movement. It was not built with the intention of being synchronized with modern life. It was built as the opposite. It was built as a reaction to reform conservative. So that's not what the, you know, people who put that system into place were thinking. 
it's just not, and it's apparent when, if you grow up Haredi and suddenly you find yourself in the modern world, you realize that you just do not have the tools to deal with this. Yeah. But to deal, to make, you don't have the tools to like neatly synchronize your Jewish life and your modern life. Like suddenly you're just like, you don't know where to find yourself. So I'll bring this in here. Whereas I used to think for myself that being Haredi or understanding that Torah or supporting someone in Torah, that is the ideal. And since I didn't choose that for myself full time, or I didn't choose a husband who was doing this full time, I was compromising on my life's mission. Whereas with more time that passes and reading blog posts like yours and just living in this world, I recognize that is not the only way to live the most purposeful life as a Jew. And it's very disappointing in a community that only allows for one way of life to achieve the maximum. And I remember speaking to a rabbi who's also has a position in yeshiva saying how, why should we just create lower standards? We should create, just reach for the sky. And then to which I responded, why are we creating a system where most people are going to not reach the success level and live a more failed quote unquote life where they couldn't fulfill it? Whereas in modern orthodoxy, or at least in America, yeshivish, where it's much more accepted to go work and be self-sufficient, self-sufficient. <laughs> there's that. And you bring the psychological nuances of understanding that what you're doing is you're ultimately compromising on the Torah values. You're not doing the gold standard. The no, version. I, I think what you're saying is a critical point. It actually ties very well into the Julia Hart story. Because people are saying like, oh, she dressed well and wore heels and I don't know what. And what you have to understand is people do what they do. Okay. But you have to understand where the leadership is pushing you and what it does to people when you tell them that to be a good Jew, to be a good person, to be accomplished, to get that place in heaven or whatever other types of things, which I don't know, elementary ways of thinking you tell them to do X, Y, Z, and you don't do X, Y, Z, how it, it eats away at you and creates, like you said, this cognitive dissonance. And there's any other accumulative effect over the years. Think of someone like Julia, who is really creative and wanted to have expression for that creativity or whatever other ways she felt constricted. So even if she was doing those things, she's doing it against the establishment. And that the cognitive dis- dissonance, the psychological you know, impact of going against those expectations. So then you have to talk about, are those expectations good? And because if you tell people don't kill, then yeah, don't kill. But are those expectations good? Are they legitimate? Are they like really the best? Are those really the answers to being an accomplished person? Like adding interest to your skirt? So we have to ask those questions. You're asking questions. We need to answer them. What needs to happen to leadership? Where are we going in this direction? Are Are we creating more women feminists who are going to rebel and become less Haredi so they can pursue careers. And I remember thinking when this show came out that there are going to be all the people who feel validated and acknowledged and the people who are very upset about it. And then you're going to have that reaction on the other hand where it's 
That's why TV is so horrible. That's why let's add a few more inches. Let's remove whatever screens we did have because this is disastrous. It's even more dangerous. And now we have to be even more stringent. And that's what I'm afraid for societies that are already insular and closed off to keep just adding more and adding toxicity to to the culture in the name so, of religion. I hear that, but my stance is pretty simple in that I think that the Haredi world has to make some changes when it comes to women. The leadership has to step up and fix some things that are driving women out. I say this as someone with experience and not just, this is not off the top of my head, but you can count me as one example of someone who grew up Haredi. I'm not bitter. I'm not making a Netflix show. I live my life normally and not someone to make a lot of noise, but you can count me as one example of someone who this was definitely a big reason for me to decide to not send my girls to a basic school and not raise my children with this type of education and to firmly plant myself on the other side of the fence of modern Orthodox versus Haredi. But I know a lot of other such women. They don't like to make a lot of noise. They're living their lives peacefully. They're very happy where they are. But there are other women like this. And I suspect there will be more. Not everyone's going to be a Julia Hart. But that doesn't mean these women don't exist. So you brought up an interesting point before about how you felt like you were less than because you did not marry someone learning full time. But wasn't there a little part of you who was like, maybe there's something to it? Didn't they try to convince you that those boys are better husbands too? I know I we have a lot of, oh, but they're it's better for your life. It's better for your marriage. It's better for your home and all that kind of stuff. I don't know if you experienced that, but I definitely did. I don't know who made this decision at some point in history. A bunch of men, I don't know, and a good or aware of who, gathered around a meeting table and decided that this is what should be done, that girls should be influenced to marry boys who are learning full-time. Someone decided that somewhere and that this is what the standard should be. And then that trickles down to the teachers and it trickles down to everybody in the community and to all the people who have power and influence and that's what's done. And now you have, I don't know, 100, 200,000 people in a community being convinced to do this. And this is just one example, right? And this is definitely something I was influenced strongly. I, When I was 19, I wanted to marry only a learning boy, like learning full-time so much so that once there was this shit of threat to me and my brother had found out that he's like not the best learner. And I think I was like crying or something. And I didn't want to go out with him. Like really, what's the word? Like intense about this stuff. Was there, a, was there a woman in that room sitting around the table, you know, who understood the ramifications? Oh, wait, I'm not done. I don't know what it was like in your high school, but in my high school was very anti-college. So we had a lot of classes about how you shouldn't go to college. It's going to corrupt you. Your children won't be as religious and all that. And I vividly recall in 12th grade, a classmate raising her hand and being like, wait, you're telling us to marry men who are learning full-time, who don't have jobs, but you're also telling us not to go to college and get well-paying jobs. How are we supposed to support our families? And I'll never forget this. She said, you're missing a Muna, right? You just, you don't have the faith. You, if you would have the faith, everything would be fine. Okay, so back to my point. That's another something that some people decided around a table, men decided around a table, that this is like what the policy should be. So you have these decisions being made that influence I don't know, at least 100 to 200,000 people. And there isn't a single woman in the room. And with something like the Kolel system, it's women who bear the brunt because they're still bearing the children. They're working sometimes full time. Maybe things would be a little bit different if women actually had a say in these decisions. This is a huge problem in the Haredi world, that their women are not involved 
in any of these decision-making types of things. When you have these big meetings and there isn't a good meeting, I don't know, there was recently a good meeting because marijuana is becoming legal. There wasn't a single woman in the room. You just don't have female input when it comes to these big things. And if you look at the publications, I won't even go into the, the printing pictures part, but when was the last time there was like a, I don't know, a spread about a successful businesswoman? Or I don't know, like when was the last time you just, you don't really see this stuff. So there's a problem with just the amount of influ influence women have. And they're not the ones they, they have, they do have to some extent, they write and they have, you know, jobs and different things, but there's a very definite limit on, the, on, on how much they can actually impact certain things in their life. I think that's a huge problem. I'd like to add to this also, to all the people who respond with, there are plenty of Haredi women who are successful in the professional world. And if anybody tries to say, oh, look at Afra, she went to be and she became a doctor. I'll have you know that it probably took me a decade to undo the brainwashing um, and to undo the psychological impact of my education and all of that. So I became a doctor in spite of Bisako. Absolutely, I, I'm not gonna allow people to say, use me an example to say, that, oh, look, you can become a doctor for Bisako. Because for every me, there's 10,000. I will quote Hannah Weinstack Neuberger here. She posted this on Instagram and on Facebook. So in response to someone claiming that there are many from female doctors, lawyers, dentists, financial planners, etc., and that means that they are empowered. Many from female professional women have realized that their professions offer them the freedom to gain recognition and equality in a space that they can inhabit simultaneously with their religious roles. They would never have that otherwise within the traditional Orthodox communal power structure. Have you looked at the board members of most Orthodox schools, shuls, most mikvah boards, etc.? They're overwhelmingly male. But if you want to stay firm and use your voice, you can do that in your professional life. There's more to that. But the point is that it has she's to saying, be done in the outside of the Jewish yeah, world. She's saying, it's not of course, we shine. We shine as doctors. We don't shine mm -hmm. as people in the firm world. Yeah, words. <laughs> she's saying, yeah, we've found equality in the professional world. But no, we have not found in the firm world yet. Definitely not in the Haredi world. And this, is actually, this was actually one of my reasons for like deciding why stay Haredi is like actually going to the outside world and see the meritocracy. We're like, everything is open. And if, if you can do X, Y, Z, if you can take the MCAT, if you pass these tests, nobody checks if you're male or female, then you can, you know, and get a good score or whatever you can get into medical school. Whereas in the Haredi world, like everything is checked by, if you're a female and you want to learn Gemara, then you're subject to some scrutiny that, you know, that, that contrast of being in a world that was a meritocracy in a world where like, every single door is open. I, I may not want to be a physicist, but if I wanted to, the door is open. And it's absolutely not that way in the Haredi world. I want to point out here that when Sarah Schneer was starting the Beisiakov movement, she was considered controversial. She was feministic. Maybe it's pre that time, but she was doing what she saw was necessary to save the Jewish community. And she wasn't accepted gracefully by the male leadership and by, right. and, and today with all the pushback, what happens is everyone is just labeled feministic and with an agenda. And it's not a Jewish Torah value where it was just a hundred yeah. years ago that, and, and today 
That's the point. Today, this is standard. If you didn't go to Beysakov, you're not from enough to go out with a Kolo boy. Yeah, the people who say things like, oh, you're coming to change and whatever, are really clueless about (laughs) just how much the Haredi culture added and changed and did things like, I can't argue with these people because they don't have the knowledge base to understand. We all know that women's pictures were printed in the 60s, 70s, 80s, 80s, 90s, right? Like suddenly it became a problem. If you don't have the knowledge base to understand that where we are today is very different, I can't even argue with those people. That's one. Two, the Bishako movement lost, totally lost vision of why it was started. So Sarah Schneer adapted female learning to what was appropriate at the time in the 1920s. That was her purpose, right? If like people actually thought about that, they would do the same thing today. They would adapt women's learning to the 21st century so that they don't feel like they want to throw religion out the window because this is this religion is the dumbest thing ever, which is what happens when you don't teach people. Anybody would think it's dumb if you don't give them an, an education that's matched you know, to the culture around them, matched to their intelligence and matched to their age. So Beis Yaakov stayed stuck in the 1920s and 30s and or I, I don't want I don't want to talk for other schools. I'm talking about my own the school I went to. They stayed stuck in the what? Like they tried to preserve those 1920s, but that's not what Sarah Schneer did. Sarah Schneer didn't try to go backwards 100 years and build a school that would be appropriate for the 1800s. She built a school that was appropriate for that time. So Pesiakov did that and actually adapted and created schools that are appropriate for 2021. Now they'd be in a much better place. And and I'm, part of that would be like, for example, teaching women Talmud. The problem with not teaching women Talmud, like that happened to me, was that when you just take a few undergraduate classes, your entire education crumbles because there's no critical thinking involved. It's basically memorization. A lot of memorization or you just you parrot what you learn, but there's no you know, thinking process involved. Reminds me of how we were educated in Moscow. <laughs> Who are you to have an opinion? You just have to quote what other smart people said. Right. It seems like the danger and the risk to the firm community today, to the Haredi firm community, is that they are not adjusting and they're not creating space for the women. And it's deja vu, just like the 1920s with Sarshnir, where women, they just learn a little bit and then realize that their own communities don't allow them to learn anything. Let's talk about the final aspect, which brings the whole sneeze thing together and space for women. And the perfect example is the Hatzalah movement with women and Ruchi Fryer. Can you talk about that whole paradox of a situation and the hypocrisy? Uh, yes. So full disclosure, I never sat down with anyone from Hatzalah and had a conversation. Like, I mean, the uppers in charge. I don't know if I'm important enough for them to sit down with me. Maybe I'm like a nobody and they were never looking my direction. That's fine. Um, but it's not like I sat down with them to get a clear, direct answer. So some of what I'm seeing is like good guesses and like having people who know Hatzal and all that. For people who don't know, do you want me to like explain what happened there? Yeah, sure. Let's give the backstory. Okay. So for those of you who don't know, Hatsala is uh, a volunteer EMT organization that started out, I don't remember where, probably Williamsburg or somewhere in Brooklyn. And it, it's huge today. And, and one of 
like probably the ENT organization with the fastest response time in the world. It's a great organization. But was, what was happening was in these very insular, very, very Haredi Hasidish communities. So Haredi has a spectrum. So and Hasidish, so there's Hasidish more on the right. This is my right. And then you know, Litvish. So these are communities that are really on the right. You would have these emergencies with women getting birth or a woman falling down in the shower. And they call out Salah and who shows up? A man, fine. Usually that man is going to be someone close by, like your neighbor, someone. And this person is showing up to help you give birth or to help you in the shower when you're you know, fully naked or whatever. I don't know who it was or how it was organized, but there were some organized requests to create a female division of Hatsala to respond to these emergencies. And this request got, you know, shuffled up to Ruffy Fryer or Judge Ruffy Fryer, who, I don't know if she was the judge at the time. I don't, I think not yet. And she approached Hatsala and said, can we join to make a division for this? And they said, no. I think that their reason, they have a policy of like no women all the way from the beginning, because it would be inappropriate for men and women to work together in this environment because it's like a high adrenaline setting you're riding an ambulance together you're giving acute care it's like all that and you might become good friends with i don't know it might like initiate some workplace relationships um if, if somebody if this is wrong then i'm happy to talk to someone and they can set me straight but this is i'm pretty sure the reason that's all it didn't take women so i don't think it's a reason but fine because i think that even in such a setting because the women were coming for very specific cause you could have just created like a totally separate like you could have separated them but anyway fine so she went ahead and opened a separate organization called Ezra Snushim and people were complaining that the response time is not as fast and they were like well of course it's not we don't have an ambulance and then they applied to get an ambulance license license and this, this is the crux of the matter when they applied to get an ambulance license there was a crusade against them like a full-blown crusade that like, no, you are not going to get this ambulance license. Now, a lot of people are saying like, it wasn't because it was women or whatever. It's just like a turf war because like Atsala really didn't want anybody encroaching on their territory. That might be true, but get a load of this. You can you know find the video on YouTube. Hatsala got a list of 49 rabbis to sign a paper saying that they should not get this ambulance. So even if you come and tell me it wasn't Hatsala wasn't looking to squash women. I don't know if that's true. They got 49 rabbis to sign a paper against this. This is not like some sort of coincidence. This is not like one outlier rabbi. 49 rabbis. I think with Rabbi Kaufman, it would have been 50 rabbis. And I think this was a tremendous. You can go watch the clip on YouTube. But it's pretty outrageous that a group of men decided for these very insular women who have zero contact with men until they're married. And even then, the only men they're really interacting with most of the time is their family, maybe a little bit at work. That it's, oh, we it's okay. It's just medical care. Don't worry about it. It's outrageous. In, in the blog post, I write, I try to flip it around. Can you imagine in Borough Park, like a guy coming to a urology clinic and he has to ha have an exam and they're all female? And he's, can I get a male doctor? And they're like, no, you can't. And guess what? The lady who's going to see you, she's your neighbor. It's just medical care. Don't worry about it. So I, I think it was not outrageous, Chil Hashem. And to be honest, um, if I were still Haredi at the time, this probably would have been enough for me to be like, I've had enough of this place. 
this is just a prime example of the, the power the men have you know, over the women. Now, in the end, a rookie friar won, but she had to go to secular court, right? It's not the from people, it's not the Haredi establishment that like gave her the ambulance. They were fighting her. She ended up winning through going to secular court. So what does it say about this society when to, to get basic things that relate to basic human dignity and respect, you have to go to secular courts and they're, they're going to help you out, not the rabbis. And I'll also just, and you can read this on the blog too, that it's, it's a common thing at Mount Sinai when there's an important rabbi on the floor. They don't want women taking their blood or whatever. And imagine the outrage if like a female nurse came in to change a urinary catheter for an important rabbi. Yet some of these rabbis, I, I don't want to say that the ones I saw exactly correlated, but the concept that, oh, it's okay. It's okay. It's just medical care. Don't worry about it. Giving birth in front of your neighbor when you're a Haredi woman who barely talks to men, or at least the Hasidic ones that have very minimal contact. Anyway, I think I made my point (laughs) um, with this. And I think it was just an example that like, you want to understand what's going on? Just look at that story. That gives you a very clear picture of who has the power over women at the end of the day in that world. And the point of this conversation, thank you so much for having it with me, by the way, Dr. Efra, is (laughs) that we're not shaming, we're definitely complaining and talking about it, but we're not saying, let's throw the Torah out with the water. Let's just throw it all out. But there is a clear challenge here to understand what is Torah And what is the Jewish leadership that happens to be all male? How are they dressing up Torah? What biases that you've talked about in your blog post? What other things are they just adding on that are making it a very impossible and hard for women to feel respected, genuinely appreciated, empowered in a world where there are careers available, education, and especially in a community where women are expected to provide for the family. They do have the financial means to be empowered and independent, but there's a lot of brainwashing. I don't like calling it brainwashing, but it's not so clear anymore if anyone understands- Influencing. Influencing. If anyone understands the difference between what's actual Torah values and what's the perverted part of the Torah that, that communities are living by in the name of Torah? You know, what is fundamentalism? What is radical? What is the actual Torah? So that's going to vary based on who you ask. Like, I can't come and tell these Haredi rabbis to completely change their outlook. I don't agree with it, and I'm not going to live that way anymore. In certain respects, I'm not going to live that way anymore. But I don't know that I can come, like, it's going to vary what she thinks is Judaism and Haredim have what they think is Judaism and then everything in between. I don't know that's a question that can be answered, but what I do know is that the Haredi world doesn't like to lose people. They see that as a failure. You remember all those articles about people going OTD and all that. They see that as a failure. So I'm just coming and saying to them, if you care about this, so here are the things you should fix. Think of like certain matters that were not addressed in the past, but are are getting better. For example, the 
But when it came to sexual abuse, there was a huge problem with it being hushed and you couldn't talk about it, you couldn't bring it out. And guess what? People made a lot of noise and it did get better. So I know what you're asking. You're like trying to distill like the world's biggest problem, <laughs> like get an answer. And, but like everyone's going to have a different view on that. But I'm here to say that I don't know, like maybe I don't know what I'm talking about, but it's possible that there would be a huge defection of women from this world if you don't clean up your act. And what if you don't care, if that world doesn't care, if it's so important for you to preserve certain things that you're willing to lose people, then fine. Then like, we don't even need to have this conversation, but I think people care. They care about losing people, um, especially if it ends up being imbalanced where you have more women leaving than men. I don't know if that's going to happen. And the other thing is that there, like a lot of the people who leave are people who become more educated, sometimes climbing up certain ladders. Are those the people you want to lose? Like, I, I know a ton of such people. Very, it doesn't mean those are the only people you should try to keep in. But like, for your own sake, to have a diverse community with different types of professionals and different types of people who are an asset to your community, I don't think it's good for them to lose those people. Yeah. And I'm raising these questions for our audience as well. I think these are important questions to ask oneself. Are you happy with the amount of agency you were raised with or with the amount of agency you're raising your children with? Is this enough to raise kids in the 21st century with a college education? Are, are we teaching our kids how to swim or are we just eliminating the water? I think this is the beginning right. of many more conversations and I would like to also acknowledge all the positive posts that have been coming out with my Orthodox Life hashtag. And it's beautiful and inspiring to watch. However, this conversation was due to happen. That was my reaction to the show. I didn't feel like I wanted to share a beautiful story of my Orthodox life. I wanted to go and talk about my Orthodox life and how complicated it is and how I feel like I could only live in a community that is primarily modern Orthodox. I just feel like I can breathe. I feel like I'm respected in the community, even though I talk about taboo and controversial subjects as my brand. But you're touching on a really important point which is so key, a huge difference that I found in the Haredi and modern Orthodox world is that in the modern Orthodox world, it's not like all the problems are solved, but you can talk about the issues and your kids don't kick that out of school. I understand Julia. I'm just not surprised. And I, I don't know that I would react like her, but crazy gets crazy reactions. And it, I think the Haredi world needs a little wake up call about just how crazy some things are and for those of them saying oh but we don't want to change things this is the way it's been it's been since Har Sinai and that's a really ignorant statement to make every single generation adapts to the society whether going more right they're going more left or changing every generation has to adapt the Torah to its to that time in history otherwise what we're going to go back to live in tents like that's not how the Jewish people are I don't know. I'm not particularly bothered by this show. Maybe only I had just watched the first episode, but it, it doesn't particularly bother me. I could see why the emphasis on materialism bothers people, that emphasis on externalities and whatnot. But she's a creative person. And she's finding her voice in fashion. 
she looks to me like someone who has been squashed and restrained her whole life. And this is her chance to burst out. And maybe I didn't have that experience, but it's completely like logical to me why she's acting the way she's acting. It's definitely a reaction to some. Something else I, I think I talk about later in the blog post is it depends also on how personally you're impacted by the policies in the Haredi world. So like I talk about how I was really impacted by this concept of Das Torah, right? That some rabbi who doesn't know you takes 10 minutes to listen to your life stories is, is like the best person to make a decision for you. You made your life decisions, like in my case, who to marry. And it happened twice to me that because of Das Torah, I, well, a boy I was going out with for looking back, no good reason, just because someone told me to and because Das Torah is like the last word. I don't have any major regrets because I married a wonderful man after and all that. But that raises the question, how are other people being impacted by these policies? Like, how do these policies impact Julia? There, there's got to be a story there to why she's acting the way she is. And for those people saying, oh, well, that was not my experience. Okay, good for you. But like those experiences happen, you know, and to people, you know, like me too, it happens, it happens to other people. That's another question you have to, you know, ask. Or, or think about what she went through that was a direct result of the policies in that world. Is there anything else? As someone who taught Judaic studies for like close to a decade on a high school level and even beyond, I was quite sensitive to Haredi Hashkafa and ideology enough that I could teach it and I understood it really well inside out. So people who are coming and saying that, oh, I do X, Y, Z, but remember, the leadership is telling you it's better to not do X, Y, Z. So you're flouting the leadership, right? So that's, you're also, in a sense, you're not listening to them. So Julia's just doing that in a different way with a Netflix show, but you're just doing, but you're doing the same thing. You're also flouting the rules that were set. For example, I had this argument with someone who went to my school and she's, what do I care that they gave us speeches about not going to college and that it's terrible and you should never do it. I do whatever I want okay, but you live in a place that they're telling you not to do it. Like, you can't ignore that. You can't ignore that huge gap between what these supposed leaders are telling you to do and what the reality is. And like I said, the weight eats away at people to not be able to live by what their leaders are saying or to feel like you are not a good person because, for example, you go to college. Yeah. I'm wondering what are the pressing issues for men that are at risk for the Haredi community? I think there's quite a lot to fix on the other side of the mechitza. I feel like I can't, yeah, we have, can't we're speak running to it. Time. Oh, <laughs> yeah. I think Haredi men have like a tremendous amount of guilt for just being sexual beings. I don't know. This is like what I get. Like the emphasis on not having like inappropriate thoughts or whatever is so great to the extent that like it can cause dysfunction later. But I don't know that I'm like qualified enough to speak on this topic. That's just like something I gleaned from speaking to some people around. Right. That ultimately that <laughs> is the reason for the design of the insular community to help men with this. Right. Ideal. And it tells you who they're and who are they prioritizing. It's much more important that a man doesn't look at your picture in a magazine and have an impure thought than like a bunch of things for you, right? Again, it's the man always comes first, right? His spirituality is more important. It comes before yours. 
your picture can't be printed because he might look at your picture and think you're attractive or whatever. I don't know what, have inappropriate thoughts because of your picture. Yeah. Okay, but what about the women? And, and besides for that, where, yeah, where would you draw the line? They're in the streets too, right? <laughs> thank you so much. To be continued, thank you for your time. Thank you for your expertise. And yeah, this such sure. An honor. If you would like to contact Dr. Brooke or read her blog post, we will link everything that's available today in the show notes. She's available on Facebook, Instagram, LinkedIn, YouTube. Shout out to my mother for introducing me to Dr. Fra- Brooke's posts. Thank you so much for listening until the end. I hope you enjoyed this episode. If you feel like this was too harsh and we were attacking the Haredi community too much, please do reach out. I would love to have the other side on. I would love to bring more conversation to these topics. There was one more angle to the show that I didn't bring up in my three directions for the show, and it is that we need to create more firm representation in media, not just in blog posts and books, but on TV. We need to humanize the Jewish community and we need to allow the women who want and the men who want to go into creative jobs and spaces to work on making a Kiddush Hashem. I know Ronit Polin-Tarshish is working on something. Avital Tijek Goldschmidt posted to that. So this is an important aspect. We can't just delete my unorthodox life from Netflix but we can create more content to counteract that being the only representation of us on Netflix in 2021. Please make sure to check out our other episodes. You might enjoy them very much. Please also tell a friend about the podcast. And as always, I am a podcast producer and coach. So if you or anyone else you know who needs my services, please keep sending them my way. I really appreciate it. This is how you help support the show. Have an amazing week.